welcome to The Manifest, a podcast all about package management. My name's Alex Pounds. And I'm Andrew Nesbitt. And together, we're talking with folk from the world of package management. We're exploring the technical details, hearing the stories and history of their projects, and learning about the communities around them too. Before we get started, just a quick announcement. I'm helping to organise a package manager dev room at the FOSDEM conference in Brussels next February. If you're interested in speaking, you've got until the 1st of December to submit a talk. You'll find a link to the call for a proposal in the show notes. This week, we're joined by Trishank Karthik Kupasami, one of the developers of the Update Framework. Trishank, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Good to meet you both. Good to meet you, too. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into computer science and ended up in the world of package management? So the long story short is that you know, um, I had this huge fascination with computers since I was a kid. How do they work, right? I got into theory computation, that's super fun. Did my bachelor's in computation, did my master's in computer science. Then I did various uh, positions in research in the industry, and then I decided to pivot and decided to get my PhD, where over the past five years, my research work has focused on um, securing software distribution for uh, repositories. So what is the story there? Why do software repositories need to be secured? That is a very good question. And in fact, in my paper, I have a citation of at least 24 incidents, if I remember it right, of uh, repositories being compromised one way or another. They have bugs. So everyone uses software updates these days, and, and experts agree that software updates is the most important thing you, you, you need to do to remain secure online. And why is this the case? Well, because you get new features, that's all great, but the most important feature arguably about software updates is that they fix security vulnerabilities. Bugs that can be remotely exploited perhaps by attackers can then you know, compromise your users. So you want to use updates to fix mistakes in your software. But the problem is that if the software update mechanism used to update your software is insecure, then now you have two problems instead of one. But no one thinks about what happens in the worst case, which is what happens if attackers take over the repository or the server that's used to host and distribute these updates. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Do you have a specific incident that would be a good example of the risks involved? A few years ago, in 2008, Fedora and the Red Hat infrastructure were compromised around the same time, right? So that's a classic example. Back in 2003, Debian.org was compromised. I mean... In 2013, I believe, an audit of NPM found that there was a a remote code execution vulnerability that basically allowed attackers to rewrite NPM modules. It would have been hard to catch them without proper mechanisms such as stuff in place. Yeah, and for anyone who's not familiar, a remote code execution you can kind of think of as game over. If someone can run code on your computer, then they can do whatever they want. And you can't really trust that install again. You have to wipe it completely clean and start all over. And this is particularly interesting when we look at application level package managers that have come over the last, I guess, five years, especially that don't really follow the same kind of levels of security practice that traditional kind of system level package managers run into either. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of application-specific updaters. For example, WinM has one, Java has one, um, you know, you name it. Every application pretty much comes with its own updater, right? Particularly where the OS doesn't allow you to update your software. Um, You have to build in your own updater. And at least in my experience, most of those package managers don't have any form of 
providence behind the code that's published because they follow a model that allows people to sign up and to publish things under a, either a shared namespace or their own namespace without any real barriers to entry. There's no one checking anywhere along the line. Often that means that if a repository is taken over or has one of these security vulnerabilities where it's hard to know if anything has been tampered with potentially, like if you haven't signed the packages that you've published, how can you be sure that it is the same package that was published in the first place at any point? Exactly. And so I, I think you're alluding to um, what we call community repositories. And to be clear, when I talk about a repository, I mean the repository that hosts the binaries, right? The ultimate things of interest. This could actually be source code distribution in the end, particularly for Python packages. But typically, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on the end result of the software, you know, whether it's the store star or the binary uh, executable. What led you to start developing the update framework? So this is a collaborative project, right? It's got a long history. So I'll explain where it began. So in 2008, my advisor, Justin Campos, who's now at NYU, so he had designed a package manager for Planet Lab, which is a research environment called Stork, and he had to solve all this uh, security problems along the way where, you know, man-the-middle attackers could, you know, distribute malicious binaries to users. And he wondered, hmm, I wonder what Linux package managers do. And he found a whole variety of problems with them, ranging from simple things where you could easily fill up the user's hard drive space or memory just by continuously, endlessly serving data, right? We call that endless data attacks or in the worst case, giving them a malicious package and it would be non-divisor. So thanks to his findings, uh, Linux package managers, quite a few of them have improved their security. And then later on in 2009, the Tor folks, famous for developing this private browser, wanted, a, of course, a secure way to update that browser, right? Because a lot of people depend on Tor to remain anonymous online. And I guess there's also quite a lot of people that potentially would like to be able to control those browsers and insert code that wasn't necessarily what the users would like to have in there. For sure. And when we're talking about repository compromise, you know, I don't mean to scare people here, but you have to think about the worst kind of adversary here, right? Depending on the application, for example, in Tor, you can assume it's not just script kiddies who are after users. They could be powerful nation states with the time and resources to throw at a problem. They can find a weakness in your in your update mechanism. They're going to exploit it and attack your users, right? So the Tor projects were rightfully concerned about this, and they had a secure updater called Tandy, and they showed it to my advisor and his student back then, Justin Samuel. And all of them collaborated together, people like Roger Tingledin and Nick Matthews. So they basically collaborated together and out of Tandy came the update framework, or TUF for short, um, which uses several design principles to basically have a goal that we call compromise resilience. So even in the worst case where a powerful nation state has taken over the repository used to serve updates to your users, the damage that they can do is limited to the greatest possible extent. So then the update framework has expanded outside of just the Tor project. Was that one of the first use cases for testing the implementation of that? And then it started to become a standard from there? 
Yeah, so that's a good question. In the beginning, um, it was, I suppose, tailored more for applications like the Tor project or even operating systems such as Debian and Ubuntu and Fedora, right? Later on, when I started as a PhD student back in 2013, I was looking for my next research project. Justin and I looked at Tuff and we decided to, to look at problems. So what does it take to make Tuff work in the real world, right? And we looked at a different kind of repositories. One is traditional repositories where typically the software on the repository is managed by a single organization, right? Single group of people, things like even Debian or Ubuntu or, or even things like Tor. And yet we've got these interesting repositories that we call community repositories, examples of which include Docker Hub or the Python Package Index, RubyGems, there, there's, there's so many of them now, where anyone can come in at any time, start a new software project, and start releasing new packages right away, right? And there we quickly found out that Def had several limitations that actually prevented it from being deployed in the real world to secure community repositories. A lot of my early research work focused on that. It's interesting that you brought up Tor because Tor is a very interesting case. As you say, the attackers against Tor tend to be the bigger adversaries, the nation states and security apparatus that goes along with that. And we've talked a little bit in the past on many episodes of the manifest about security and about things like typo squatting and injecting code. And I think there's this tendency that we've certainly fallen into, and I think other people fall into, to think about security as this kind of monolithic thing. Either you are secure or you are not secure. And we often overlook the fact that there's like this broad range of security risks and adversaries out there. There are people who are just doing drive-by automated scanners. They're trying to break into a system and might be entirely hands-off. It can be a script which is going to look for known vulnerabilities, and if it finds one, it will drop a Bitcoin miner on your server, and it'll just keep on going. Then there are people who are looking against a specific person. If you are a well-known company, you probably have people who are exploring your infrastructure and looking for ways in and trying to figure out something. Maybe they want to make money off you. Maybe they want to like steal your data, something like that. And then you have, as you say, that top level element, those nation states who are might be looking for both like broad surveillance of an entire population or targeting specific people. And all of those come with different trade-offs and different risks and different avenues and things you have to consider. Well, the threat model can be actually the same for even those various types of attackers that you describe, right? Every one of them has got different motivations, but the goals are pretty much the same. So you can actually kind of simplify the problem. You can use the same threat model. You can say, well, I assume this, this attacker has got man-the-middle communication between the repository and the users either by taking over an insecure channel such as HTTP without SSL, or even taking over the repository itself, right? Or in some package managers where they allow various people to be mirrors, you can register yourself in the mirror and man the middle users that way. And the second thing we assume is that, you know, whether you're a script kitty or a nation state attacker, you have access to one or more, what we call online signing keys, keys that are kept on the repository or under the carpet as it were. So if I'm a thief, and I know that you tend to keep your keys to the house under the carpet, I'm easily going to be able to enter your house, right? So those are the rough metaphor for online keys. So with this very two simple assumptions, you can actually model a vast variety of attackers, each with different goals, different motivations. But at the end of the day, that's the same capability for them. Does that make sense? 
That does. And with the same capabilities, presumably that means the defense is the same as well. Right. And of course, I think as a general principle, security is never free, right? It's, it always incurs either usability costs or performance costs. And the more you try to secure users, you can have this perfectly secure um, but unusable system, right? Because basically it's unplugged. <laughs> and, and which is perfectly secure, but it's perfectly unusable. So security in the real world is, is quite a fine balance. But we, we talk about how in our work you can have quite a lot of security while incurring the least possible hassle to developers and users who should ideally be unaware that the security is being taken care of. The only time they should notice a problem, when the tough framework transparently checks uh, the packages and says, wait a minute, there's a security attack here, I'm not going to install this. So do you want to explain a little bit about the design decisions and the way that Tough actually works? So maybe to give a sample for why Tough was designed the way it was designed, maybe I'll compare a little bit, very briefly, two, two previous common off-the-shelf systems that people use to try to solve the problem and why it doesn't quite work. The first system is something like um, SSL or TLS or CUP, the client update protocol by Google, where you basically use an online key to encrypt connections between the repository and your users. And this is a good start. It, it prevents man-the-middle attacks. But notice that it doesn't protect your users at all when the repository itself has been compromised because the key used to encrypt connections on demand is kept online, right? Keys under the carpet, as it were. And so that's game over for basically all your users. I take away your web server, I've got this online key, and I can compromise all your users. And this is true even if the repository uses something like a hardware security module or a HSM to protect the, the private key. That's not the point. It's certainly better than nothing. But the point is they can still use the hardware security module connected to your server to sign for malicious stuff, you see? Now, a second common way that people tend to solve this problem is to use something like a crypto system like GPG or RSA. And so they sign metadata about packages. Metadata is just information about your packages, such as cryptographic hashes or the file size. And if you sign it using your private offline keys that are kept off the repositories on your laptop, right? So you're the Django developer, you sign metadata hashes about your latest Django 2.0 alpha package, and then you upload the signed metadata along with your package to the PyPI, for example, then unless attackers steal your offline key, even if they hack into PyPI, there's not much that they can do to tamper with your packages because they, they won't be able to tamper with your package without having the right key. They will be caught. That's the assurance given by the crypto system. So this is good. Certainly signing with offline keys is a great idea. But the problem is that in practice, especially with things like GPG, public key distribution is a huge problem. I got a month of downloads from PyPI in 2014 and I found that basically very, very, very few developers sign their projects at all. And on top of that, very, very, very few users download GPG signatures, even if developers provide it. So those are two common approaches there that don't quite live up to the mark, unfortunately. So to solve this problem, the update framework uses a few design principles, and they're quite simple. But when you add them all up together, they give you quite a lot of power, quite a lot of flexibility, which is why it's a framework and how you configure it's up to you. But the first design principle is this. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? As grandma would say. So don't sign all your metadata about all your packages using this one key. That's pretty good. 
but if I steal this one key, then it's game over. We don't want that. So the first principle is the separation of duties. You have different types of metadata. You know, some metadata is about the timeliness of packages. Other metadata are actually about the packages themselves. They're much more important. And you sign for them different roles. These are just different people. They could be the repository administrators. They could be the package developers. They sign different types of, uh, types of metadata using different keys. So that the key compromise does not necessarily affect the security of the whole system, you see? The second design principle is the idea of using threshold signatures or using multiple keys to sign off on something. And if you think about it, this also has another useful real-life analog. If you want to do something important like launching a nuclear missile, you have at least two people with two different keys who must come together and turn the um, thing together to launch the missile. You can use the same idea here in, uh, in software updates. You can require at least six out of ten different keys, for example, to come together and sign off on an update together. Unless six different keys were compromised, and the chances of that is quite, quite minuscule, uh, your users won't fall for malicious software. And the third design principle is uh, you basically want a public key infrastructure, something that crypto systems like GPG and RSA don't give you out of the box. So you need a way to explicitly and implicitly revoke keys because keys can be stolen, they can be lost, they can be compromised, right? So you can explicitly revoke keys by publishing new keys to replace old ones. Or you can do it implicitly by setting an expiration timestamp on your metadata, which basically forces you to renew your keys. And then the fourth design principle is to minimize risk using offline keys. Remember I talked earlier about online keys. That's essentially the problem with things like SSL or DLS. So for some really valuable metadata, you want to sign for them using offline keys or keys kept off the repository, for example, in USB sticks and safe deposit boxes. Something that the Decker scan can't immediately get to, even though they've broken their repository. And then, so those are basically the four major design principles. You've got separation of duties. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. You've got threshold signatures. You want multiple people to come together to sign off on something very important. You've got the idea of explicit and implicit revocation of keys. And the fourth thing is you want to minimize risk by signing some things using offline keys. And then two other design principles I think is worth mentioning. One of them is the idea of using the diversity of hashing and signing algorithms. So Tuff is agnostic with what crypto system you use. You can use GPG, you can use ED25519, you can use RSA, we don't care. In fact, we encourage you to use two or more of them, right? So that even if attackers manage to break one of them, you still have the other crypto systems that rely on. So failure of one of them doesn't necessarily mean a compromise of your users. This applies to hashes too, right? By default, we include things like SHA-256 hashes, but you can include SHA-3 if you like and so on, whatever future hashing algorithms come up with. So the attackers break hashes for one of them, such as say SHA-1, you're not worried. It's okay because you were using SHA-2 as a backup. So let's talk some more about the actual in-depth details of this because I think when we ever we talk about any technology described as a framework, it can be really hard for people to get their head around exactly what is going on. So if I am a user, let's say I'm coding in Python, do I need the project maintainers of PyPy to already know about the update framework and do their work? Or 
do people have to use top or is it like either a yes or no or can people add support in a way which means users who care about this can have all this extra security and users who don't care about it just don't have to worry about it yeah one of the one of the original motivations for designing tough the way it is today is uh, the python package index right um, so we have two peps for it that talks about how the PyPI can slowly but surely integrate Tuff into its own repository and give users the ability to use Tuff. It is not yet in place. So today there's not an option if you are a Python developer for you to be able to use Tuff unless you're willing to host it on another repository. But on repositories like Docker Hub where Tuff is turned on, they call it notary. Uh, there's an option for you to sign your own packages and stop protecting your users. So if I'm consuming packages, as in I'm a Python developer and I'm pulling packages down from PyPy, then PyPy has to have that support for Tough built in for me to get those benefits. But if I'm publishing packages somewhere like Docker Hub, then I can include that support if I choose. I don't need that Docker support after all. I think I've got that wrong. So Docker basically supports stuff in the background. So when you do Docker pull Ubuntu, for example, they've signed Ubuntu images on your behalf, if I understand this correctly, from my private communications with them. But if you're a developer who has your own container image in Docker Hub, you can use their command line tools to, yes, sign your own metadata, tough metadata, about your container images because uh, Docker has given you the tools to do it and their infrastructure and code basically takes care of it. And PyPI, don't get me wrong, can do this. Any other repository can do this, provided the administrators have spent a bit of time to put this infrastructure in place. Yeah, I think I was thinking it's not like just some freeform metadata which you can include, like an ID3 tag and an MP3. If your MP3 program knows nothing about the ID3 format, it's just going to ignore those ID3 tags. Whereas if it does know about it, it can show you the song title and the song name. But in this case, you need to actually have that tooling support to actually get any benefit out of Tough at all. You can't have like a standalone utility to say, okay, check this Python package. Has this been tampered with? So it's not a lot of work to do it in a, in a custom way, right? So, so here's the work that you need to do to be able to use Tough. Basically, there's, there's two models for slowly but surely building security in a community repository. So in the beginning, you can have the repository basically signing for everything using online keys, right? This is certainly not perfect, right? It gives you the same security models as SSL because once I break the repository, nothing prevents me from using this online key to basically tamper with all packages. So it protects you from man-the-mill attacks. But the idea is that slowly but surely, you want the repository to delegate. We call them delegations. That's a very important concept and tough. So the, thing, the problem with things like GPG, so Django, for example, I believe, they signed for their Django packages. There's metadata about it, signed using their GPG keys on PyPI right now. You need to download uh, and, and verify it manually yourself. I do not believe that PIP does it for you. But if PyPI were using Tough, they basically set up one-time work to set up all this metadata that's handled by administrators. But you want the developers themselves to sign. In an ideal world, you would have the Django developer signing for their own packages using their own keys, right? You'd have the Bcrypt developer signing for their own packages using their own keys. Then. But that will take time to get there. And I talk about this in, in more detail in our paper called Diplomat. But the idea is that you want more and more projects to sign for their own packages using their own keys. So that way, the compromise of any one developer does not affect the users of other projects, you see, because they haven't installed those compromised projects. 
So when developers are signing the packages that they're publishing, does Tuff basically put a, a protocol in place for publishing their public keys as well so that that can be verified without needing to directly contact them? Right. So if, if Django, for example, publishes, um, you know, metadata about its packages today using GPG or even Tor does it to this day, do the same thing, then it's up to the user as me. And, and even as a security expert, I have a hard time, you know, verifying GPG keys. And Tuff does it transparently for you. The way this is done is using the same mechanism I talked about earlier, delegations. The software in a repository like PyPI is organized by projects. There's the Django project, there's the Bcrypt project, there's the NumPy project, and so on. Tens of thousands of these projects. So what administrators would do is that they would sign a file, and this file is simply a list of keys, keys to projects. You see, that's what delegations is. It's just a file saying this is the key for Django, trusted only for Django hyphen star packages. This is the key for Bcrypt, trusted only for Bcrypt star packages. So you bind public keys to projects. And that is how you distribute and revoke them, you see. Because the administrators are distributing the public keys for developers, that is how you can transparently get their public keys, you see, without having to resort through out-of-band processes like the GPG Web of Trust. And you, as a user, wouldn't notice any difference at all, except in a case where there's a security attack that, that top detects in the background. So basically you turn the repositories into not only a host of people's code, but of the public keys that signed that code as well. Perfect, exactly. So not just a repository of packages, but now a repository of signed metadata about those packages, right? Because that's how you tell whether packages have been tampered with or not at rest. I guess you're also then ensuring that you've signed the signatures of those packages as well. Yes, so, so the question now becomes, how do you sign this file, this project's metadata file that distributes the public keys of developers, right? A different project. Now, the ideal answer is, well, duh, just sign it using offline keys because that's the security property that you want. Uh, so that even if attackers take over the repository, they can't tamper with these delegations, you see? You've signed for it once using offline keys so that I can't mess around with this public key distribution, at least not without having the keys. That's the property that the crypto system gives to me. But the problem with that is that that works for repositories where there's not a lot of new projects being created immediately. So, so you have security, but no usability there. Because on repositories like PyPI and a month of observation, I saw that there was at least project being created or updated every four minutes on, on, on average. So if you have a new project being, uh, being created potentially every four minutes, then that's a problem because if you're requiring repository administrators in order to provide security to whip out the offline keys, you know, maybe six out of 10 different keys that need to come together every four minutes just to sign a new delegation to a new project, you see? Here's the new key for this new project. Then you've lost usability. So then the alternative is to, well, you know, I guess that key has to be online. So you let a robot sitting on the repository sign new delegations, register new projects for you immediately. Humans are no longer involved, right? So now you have usability, but it's the keys under the carpet problem, the online key problem, because I signed the delegations to all projects using online keys. Now any attacker taking over the repository can mess with delegation to any project. 
So previously in Tough, you could have either security or usability. And Diplomat is the first piece of uh, research work that I did that gives community repositories like PyPI both. So you only let the robot register new projects. I just created Django, right? I registered in PyPI. A robot on the repository would take my public key and distribute it for me. And then the idea is that periodically, you know, let's say every two weeks, or every month, whenever the human administrators have got free time, they would move the delegations from this, signed by this robot, to another role controlled by human beings, human administrators with offline keys. And once you've moved this delegation from that new project's role signed by the robot to this offline role controlled by human beings, which is a more trusted role, then attackers who compromise the repository can't tamper with those delegations. I wish I had pictures and uh, to show this. It would be much easier to understand. So if you're running this robot every two weeks, then the projects that are been published within the last two weeks so I have a higher security risk than anything that has been on the repository for a long period of time. Exactly. So you're basically balancing security and usability. If a project has been delegated for by administrators using offline keys versus this other robot here who you resort to only for new projects, one is an offline chain of trust and then the other one is online. Whenever you download a package, the key idea is to always ask that offline chain of trust first. Hey, do you have Django? Do you know about it? Have human administrators delegated it? Okay, great. Then I will go off there and install that package with a lot of assurance, right? Because I know that even if attackers have taken over the repository, they can't tamper with those packages because they're all signed for using offline keys. But then you want the, you, you want the option to, oh, Django hasn't been delegated using the offline chain of trust yet? Oh, I guess it may be a new project. Let me backtrack and ask this robot. Hey robot, do you know about Django? Oh yeah? Okay. Let me uh, let me install that package. I know I'm taking a risk here, but the risk is, as you noticed, limited only to new projects. And projects that have been created in the past two weeks or a month, depending on how often administrators do the due diligence of moving keys from the online to the offline chain of trust. You see? So... Would there be potentially a way of allowing a user or a namespace to also have its keys kind of collected rather than at the project's level, but actually at the the owners or the the user that would be publishing or maybe even the, the company that we're publishing so that if I'm already been approved or have been signed with the offline key, that any future packages that I publish using my key can be approved without needing to wait for that two-week window? Yes, exactly. Once human administrators have moved you from the online to the offline chain of trust, then yes, you can independently update your project without blocking on PyPI, right? That's a one-time work. And then the second point is this, you can go further. As the project owner, you can be the only person updating that project from now on. Or you can use delegations to further delegate the responsibility you have. So you can say, I as Andrew, I'm going to delegate the Mac binaries to Alex. I'm going to delegate the Windows binaries to someone else. I'm going to delegate the Linux binaries to someone else, you see? So that even if one of these guys have been uh, compromised, that's okay. Because it, it is a bad scenario. Some users will end up installing malware. But... Only the users who install the Mac binary, for example, that's the key that Linux users won't be affected. 
Right, so you're reducing the surface area, especially for these large repositories. NPM, I think, is up to almost 500,000 packages and who knows how many versions. Reducing that surface area can have a big impact from a least effort approach. Yes, we want the best bang for the buck, right? So that's a very good point. In the simplest configuration of Tuff on something like PyPI, well, you sign for everything using online keys, but that's not ideal, right? You basically have the robot delegating everybody, but it's not ideal because it's easy to see why. I take over this robot, all eggs in one basket, game over for everybody, for 500,000 projects. But then the question to ask is, well, sure, in an ideal world, I could get 500,000 different projects to sign their own packages, but this is not going to happen anytime soon. Are you kidding me? So one very simple but powerful idea is to get only the top 1% of popular projects to sign for their own packages. So in our paper, we, we, we tried this uh, simple policy. So I have a month of downloads from PyPI. Back then, there were around nearly 60,000 projects, and 1% of it, I think, I think it came up to 500 projects at most. If you get only 500 out of 60,000 projects to sign for their own packages, you could protect more than 70% of users who visited PyPI in that hypothetical month, right? Where attackers control PyPI undetected for an entire month, and yet more than 70% of your users will be safe. They won't install malware because this users only install projects that were signed for by using offline keys, you see? A lot of users would be safe. Relatively, the vast majority of them, they install only popular projects, you see? Yeah, so I've seen that data mirrored in most of the other package managers that Libraries.io has indexed. So Libraries indexes not only all of the package managers, but GitHub, GitLab and Bitbucket and looks for their dependencies on every repository. So we end up getting a picture of how many packages are depended on across all of open source. Basically, it ends up being about one to 2,000 packages that are used so much more than everything else. It's the long tail of open source. And you've basically got for each package manager between 100 and 500 superstar packages. And often the ability to publish those packages are shared between a smaller collection of developers who are the maintainers. So you look at the Ruby world, you've got maintainers that maintain Rails also uh, on Nokagiri, and Rack and a lot of the other really popular Ruby gems because basically once you're trusted to look after one of those projects, you end up kind of naturally picking up some of the others. So if we can get those people signing their releases, that actually covers a huge amount of the use cases for, say, 90% of all of the users. Exactly. You can exploit this um, power law distribution of the popularity of software, right? And you can use this to great effect to build a lot of security for relatively little work because very few projects are responsible for the vast majority of downloads. If you spend your time and effort just securing those those projects, that's a great start. Does Tuff have anything defined as ways of reporting back when it finds a mismatch or a potentially malicious package? Hmm, that's a good question. We haven't thought about it. This is outside of the scope of our work, but I don't see, you know, we certainly don't prevent you from doing this. You could imagine a developer tries to install a popular signed package from a 
big package manager, say from Maven, and Tuff checks it and goes, oh, this doesn't look right. This has been signed with the offline key and it is not matching the signature. I'm expecting it. Let me report that back, maybe not directly to the same server that appears to have been compromised, but to somewhere else to say, hey, uh, I've noticed a weird package here. And potentially that sets off a trigger or some alert for the maintainers via email or some other different system to basically give a number of people a, a better indication of what the security of the system that they're using is like. That's a good idea. I like it. And you're right. You don't want to report back to the source, an online source that attackers can control. But perhaps you can do it through other out-of-band channels, such as um, email, for example, right? You would send an email to um, two different administrators at the same time, every time you see this problem. And this is presumably scalable because you're not going to see this problem all the time. You'd also be able to double check that report if you could run the system uh, say that same client will then go and try and download that same package and check because you could imagine if there was an endpoint that you could just report bad packages to anyone could just post hey this one's bad and this one's bad but your system that received an email could then go oh i will actually try and install this as well and see if that same problem arises right although i imagine there are certain subtleties you have to take care of in practice because there might be clever ways that attackers can abuse this mechanism to dos the reporting server flooded with reports. Security is a never-ending business. One thing I wanted to touch on with this is that Tuff seems to be very concerned with artifact security, if you like, as in the package, the release, the bundle of code has not been modified by somebody who doesn't have permission to modify it. But in the world of open source, contributions can come from all different kinds of places, and it's certainly possible in that world for either bugs or actual malicious code to make its way into projects. We've seen that a number of times in the past. And even if a release is legitimate, if bad code has got into the repo, then Tuff will say, yep, this was a legitimate release, but it had those flaws within it. So this isn't necessarily something Tuff can do something about, but what can developers and communities, open source communities around various projects do to help address those kind of human security problems. So you're right. Tuff makes this implicit assumption that administrators and developers are trustworthy. And, and yes, they are for the most part trustworthy. But as you observed, sometimes mistakes can happen, especially in an open source project where you're drawing in contributions from people you potentially don't know. Um, bad code could accidentally make its way. And you're right. Your question is about what, what about securing the software supply chain from the moment source code was checked into a repository to the resulting artifact that's placed in a repository. So it goes back deeper. And this is a valid, legitimate, legitimate concern that you raise. So for example, someone had managed to um, insert a backdoor into the Linux kernel, I forget when. And fortunately, one of the maintainers for BitKeeper basically noticed that someone had inserted the backdoor into a Linux kernel and the backdoor was very, very subtle, right? It's very easy to miss. And luckily they caught it, but the damage could have been quite, quite, quite bad. So Tuff doesn't solve that problem. Tuff solves the problem of making sure that the artifact you install from the repository is, is as it was intended. But it doesn't necessarily guarantee that the artifact itself had assurances of who produced it and who signed for it. Now there's a related project called Intoto that I'm not involved with. 
And that solves a different problem than that, uh, which is going from the repository back to the original source code. Um, it basically uses similar but not identical design principles as stuff. You set up your CI or CD environment to say, only these peoples with these keys are allowed to commit uh, source to GitHub, and I'm gonna check for the signatures. Only these people are allowed to build off those uh, source code commits. And you can end up adding signatures in every step of your CI or CD process. And basically using similar ideas from Tuff, you'd basically go deeper than Tuff and check more metadata to solve that problem. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Are there non-technical things that open source projects can do to improve their security? Like code review is obviously one thing which really helps. Having lots of people look at a pull request before it gets merged can definitely help improve the security. But the example which I had in mind was, I think, an SSL bug. It was similar to the kernel one where someone was attempting or it was designed to look like a check against zero, but it was actually an assignment to zero. And it's one of those bugs where you look at and you go, well, was that deliberate? Was that like somebody who very subtly introduced this or was it a oversight? Somebody just made a typo. They put one equal sign when there should have been two. Now, testing can help with that and code review can help with that. But I think there might well be other things that projects can do to help catch those issues before they hit production. One of the things that comes to mind is uh, static code analysis especially for languages like C or Java. There are excellent products out there, things like Coverity. So that's something that's relatively easy that you can quickly add to your project, right? You also have fuzzing and formal testing. I don't know if you'd necessarily be able to produce a mathematical proof for some of the JavaScript code that I've seen floating out on the internet. But for things like OpenSSL, there's intensive projects to try and fuzz every potential input and output to check for the things that would be impossible to manually write tests for. Yeah, there's some things, so you're right. I mean, but things like formal verification, that's more technical. It requires more upfront work by the developers, which is why a lot of people don't do it. I don't blame them. It's very hard. Um, often you're under a lot of deadlines to produce software that just works. You don't have time to necessarily make sure you have mathematical proofs for how your software works. But for things like the SSL or TLS stack, there are various interesting projects, like people who are rewriting SSL and TLS in, in OCaml, which is amenable to proofs. And you basically have very, very, very solid, um, formally proven code at the end of the day. But you can do this for a relatively small number of projects, right? And for relatively small projects too, because the larger your code, the larger it is to actually uh, model check it. It becomes very expensive. All of the security stuff can sound very notional and vague and not really dealing with a nitty gritty on a day to day basis. How much should regular users care about the security of their package manager? Very good question. I would say ideally none at all, right? If I, as a regular user, I don't want to worry about this. Ideally in the real world, other people are taking care of this for me. But of course you need to make informed decisions, right? You want to use package managers and repositories that you know are using compromise resilient techniques to take care of my security so that I don't have to think about it. So that there's something in the background always taking care of me, a guard dog as it were. But I'm very happy to say that at the end of the day, you can take steps to solve this problem, right? Start signing your own projects and start insisting that repositories give you the ability to use things like Tuff. We've got reference implementations written in Python. 
We've got independent implementations of it in Go and Rust. And of course, you know, a lot of these open source repositories, they run on volunteer power, right? So you should take the time to help them out with it. Read up on Tuff, ask us questions. We'll help you build your integration of Tuff with your favorite open source repository and help them to improve the security, not only for your own selfish interests, you want to secure yourself, but for everyone else at the same time. It's quite, quite good use of your time. What other things can software developers do to help their security? Some things which jump to my mind are make sure they're using two-factor auth for any service which supports it, user password manager, and make sure all of your software updates are also installed. Are there any others that I've missed off that list? Yeah, so definitely things like 2FA helps, right? So in case your password is stolen, no one should be able to sign in immediately as you and start producing weird binaries especially for if you're responsible for very important repositories. So what other things have been built on top of Tuff? So Tuff was originally designed for the domain of, you know, what I would call traditional computing, things like desktops, laptops, even smartphones, things that are very powerful and they can download all this metadata, check signatures, however many signatures you want and so on, right? Lots of RAM, lots of CPU and so on. And then we got this interesting project of securing software updates for automobiles, cars, computers on wheels, basically. <laughs> because that is basically what cars are becoming. A modern luxury car, for example, if memory serves me right, can have up to 100 ECUs, electronic control units, which are basically just microcomputers. Each ECU is responsible for something like the brake or the engine or the infotainment system or the telematic system that... You know, things like OnStar that calls 911 if it detects you've been in an accident. So you get all these little computers in your car and they talk to each other. Now, the thing that makes the, the problem interesting is this. First of all, it's a distributed network of computers. It's not like updating a single computer. You have to update 100 ECUs, 100 different microcomputers all at the same time. And each ECU, this microcomputer, they're heterogeneous. You know, some are very powerful. They have very fast CPUs. They have a lot of RAM, like an infotainment system that can run Linux and so on. And some are, you know, they're pitiful. They're weak because they're designed for one thing and one thing only. So it can be an 8-bit CPU, for example. So some of them are going to have a hard time doing crypto because they might not have a fast enough CPU or don't have the RAM for it. And then to make things more interesting, all the CCUs talk typically on this broadcast network called CAN where anyone can talk to anybody and anyone can pretend to be anybody. So spoofing is an endless possibility, basically no authentication. And it's one thing for me to compromise your smartphone. You know, it's bad, it's pretty bad, but it's quite another for me to hack your car, right? As you can easily imagine, the problem is much, much more severe there. You want to update cars in a secure way. You want to update cars remotely because the, the traditional way of updating them, which basically is a manual recall, it's a very time-consuming process, very expensive, especially millionaire cars are involved. Or in some other case, this is even happening in real life, they will send you a USB stick with a firmware update and expect you to stick it in your car and do it, right? Yeah, I have that with my car. I did actually look at downloading one to improve the stereo and decided not to just plug something I downloaded off the internet into my Fiat. <laughs> That's a very good idea. I would highly recommend you not doing so, at least until you know that update is running on it. So... Uptain is basically a long story short, a fork of Tuff that's designed especially for automobiles. There are different challenges here on desktop computers and servers, laptops, smartphones, whatever. 
dependency resolution or the process of figuring out which uh, packages you install together without any conflict, this process is done by your package manager running on your computer. But this is not so for cars. For cars, for various legal and technical reasons, this process is best done by the OEM or the original equipment manufacturer, the people who make the cars. They want to control this because different cars with the same hardware could be told to install different things. So you and I could have the both same SUE, same exact ECUs on them. And yet you would install one, one set of software and I would install another because you paid for the premium package and I didn't. We see that with Tesla where you can basically pay for the automatic driving upgrade, but it's exactly the same or the hardware's already there. Exactly. So, and Tesla, so what happened with Tesla is that uh, Keen Security Research basically found a way to um, man-the-middle attack them and install a firmware of your choosing on Tesla cars, basically because Tesla wasn't signing software updates. So they were able to make Tesla install malicious images on its gateway ECU, which is basically like a router in your car. That was the one controlling which ECUs can send which messages. So it's kind of like a firewall, very important for security. But it could completely bypass that by, by installing malicious images, simply by making the car connect to a rogue Tesla Wi-Fi AP, you see? And then they were able to accelerate the car, break the car, it's quite scary. And so now Tesla has signing software updates, which is very good. But here's the thing you should be worried about. What happens if someone hacks into Tesla? So that's why we design Optane. So that makes it extremely difficult, even if someone hacks into your car maker, to make it very difficult for them to get all the pieces needed for complete control. So you basically get the OEM's got a robot running in the cloud. This robot has got the power to choose what is installed on different ECUs and different vehicles. If you think about it, that's a lot of power. And this robot is very complicated. It's got complicated software and it's connected to the internet. It's a matter of time before it gets hacked. And when it gets hacked, you don't want the robot to have the power to choose to install malware in cars. And so you want to reduce the power of the robot. You don't want to give the robot the power to choose whatever arbitrary images that it makes up out of thin air. You want to reduce what the robot can do. So the way you do it is by having two repositories. In the first repository, you have all the images. It's just a self-contained archive that contains all the code and our data for an ECU to function. And all these images for different ECUs are signed by human beings, right? Using offline keys. But this repository called the image repository doesn't tell your car what to install. This robot on the other repository called the director repository, that robot tells you what to install. But you always double check it. What it tells you to install, you always double check it against this other repository called the image repository. So you want to make sure what the robot tells you to install is the same thing that have been signed by human beings. So what does this do? You basically reduce the power of the robot. It can only, in the worst case, give you a misconfiguration. Images that shouldn't be installed together. But it can never produce malicious images out of thin air. It can only choose images that have been signed by human beings. You see? The robot is basically acting like a package manager client, but on a server, the output is then sent down to the cars rather than the cars actually doing the orchestration of those images itself. Yeah, that's an excellent summary. Exactly. You're, you're running the package manager or the dependency resolution part of it, at least on the cloud. But the car, the, the vehicles are not blindly trusting the service. We call that full verification. They're always double checking that robot against what human beings have done. 
because that robot could be compromised. And then do the ECUs that have less power, are they looking to other ECUs in the car to do the verification for them? So there are two types of ECUs, primaries and secondaries. Primaries are the fast, powerful ones that are connected to the internet and they will download and verify all this metadata and images, right? They would do full verification. And then the secondaries have to depend on the primaries to download the metadata and images for them, but they don't blindly trust the primaries. So secondaries can do one of two things. They can repeat the entire set of checks that primaries do, full verification, because who knows, the primaries could be compromised, right? So you do the whole checks again. Did what the robot sign, does it match what human sign? Okay, good. But if you're a, if you're a weak ECU, you would do something called partial verification, where you basically trust the primaries to do this double checking for you, and you check for only one signature from this robot, right? Because that's how powerful you are. That's the limit of your computational abilities. But, but notice that someone who takes over the robot still can't install malicious images on this weak ECUs. They do what we call partial verification. Why? Because the primary is always double checking on their behalf, you see? The primary is always protecting secondaries. Now you have two bars to compromise. So if the rogue nation state is not only taken over the director repository, the robot, but also your primaries, maybe by remotely exploiting them, then they can install malware on this partial verification ECUs, but only on those guys not the full verification issues, because they're always double-checking. Out of interest, do you have a take on the ethics of some of these car updates? I'm thinking particular cases like Tesla, which recently in one of the hurricanes which hit America, unlocked some extra range on some Tesla models, where the car was always capable of doing a further distance, but was locked by software in some cases to a certain range. And some people say, well, that's fine. You've paid for a particular capability and you receive that capability. And other people say, well, hang on. You've artificially limited the capabilities of this hardware that I've bought and I own the hardware. Any thoughts on where you fall about whether that's ethical or unethical? So some people are worried about basically DRM on cars. If we basically give the manufacturers the ability to fully control what's installed and what cannot be installed. This is a question that's completely orthogonal to Optane, right? Optane doesn't, doesn't lock you into DRM. The manufacturers decide whether or not they want to lock in the users. Now, to be fair to Tesla, they did upgrade everyone to the same version of software. I can see legitimate arguments either way. Um, and I believe that this is a, a debate that should be held openly between consumers of vehicles and, and manufacturers. This will be a very rich, vibrant topic in the future, I'm sure. So which repositories are already using Tough? So I'm very, very pleased to say that the latest version of Tough is being integrated by open source repositories like Haskell, OCaml, Python, Ruby, and Rust, which doesn't necessarily mean you can start using Tough right away on these repositories, but you're working on it. And the best way for you to be able to use Tough is to help them, help them, you know, start contributing source code. And I'm very, very happy to say that Tuff is being used in production by Leap, Flynn, VMware, DigitalOcean, Cloudflare, CoreOS, and Docker. So if you're using these service providers, you should rest assured that, that your security is being quite well taken care of. And if you're interested in details, you can go to places like CoreOS Quay and, and Docker Hub, where they use this independent implementation of Tuff written in Go called Notary. And you can see all about how it works and start signing for your projects right away. And how can people get involved and contribute to Tuff itself? 
Very good question. So we have this uh, website on GitHub, the update framework.github.io. And if you're interested in Uptane, it's Uptane, U-P-T-A-N-E.github.io. It's open source. It's all in Python. We've got lots of open issues left, and we could definitely use your, um, your, your input and feedback and uh, make Duff even better and stronger. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Shashank, for taking the time today to chat with us and tell us all about Uptane and all about Tough and all about the details of how the project is working to keep us all secure as we develop code. And thank you for scaring everyone. I'm sure we're going to have nightmares about how potentially insecure our package managers are. <laughs> thank, thank you both very much. It was a real pleasure chatting with both of you. And tough, if we do it right, it's like a good horror movie. We start by scaring you, but it has a happy ending. Yeah, I think for this week's sign-off, I'm not going to go with a bye for now. I'm going to go with the crime watch. Don't have nightmares. <laughs> <laughs>